as we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to your word. I pray that you would help us. That you would focus our attention so much. God takes our attention away. Even as we come to worship, it's morning, it's early. It's Sunday, it's different. Who knows what has taken place on our way here. But now I pray that you would focus our attention upon your word to really hear from you this morning. God, this is a means, a primary means of your grace to us. So I pray that your grace would come to us, that we'd increase our faith, that it would strengthen it, that it would encourage us, that in the deepest and richest sense of that word, it would bless us. This, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to John chapter 17. We've been here for a little while. A few weeks we'll be here for a a little while longer. But uh, today, John in chapter 17, uh, please. I want to read verse, beginning with verse 6 through the end of the, through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. This is, of course, Jesus praying. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name with which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Uh, We've come again to to, to sort of mine this prayer of Jesus. 
Um, you, you know the occasion. Uh, Jesus has been in an intimate moment, situation, evening with his uh, disciples. Um, and the one who would betray him has left them. In fact, around the corner he would meet this one who would betray him. And he would be arrested. And he would be tried in a trial that was, in a sense, a mockery of justice. And he would be killed, died. He would on a cross and then on the third day after rise from the dead. The hour, Jesus said, had come. This hour for him to be glorified. This hour for him to be shown, to be seen, to be known. This hour when it would be seen that he is the very Son of God. This, very, this hour had come that he would be shown to be the fullness of deity in him. This moment had come that people would be able to see, really. It would be shown, it would be revealed that He was Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord, the Savior of all who would trust in Him. That's about all to happen. And Jesus then turns, turns to pray. Uh, he prays first for Himself. We didn't read those verses, but we've discussed them in those first five verses that, of, of this prayer that, that Jesus prays for Himself. He prays that He'll be glorified. In fact, He prays that He'll be glorified so that the Father would be glorified. And, and, and the realization here is that the Father has given Him work to do through which He and the Father will be glorified. And this work that He's been given to do is to give eternal life to all those the Father had given to Him. And thus, he, he, he goes about that work, and, and, and he's going about that work, and that work is about to come to fruition. And so he prays, and that little expression that he's come to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him is deep for us. It's mysterious, no doubt, to think that God had us in mind even before the foundations of the world. It's amazing for us to think that when Jesus went to the cross, He had us in mind. And He had us in mind in such a way, not simply to provide an opportunity for us to have eternal life and to be saved, but to secure that for us. He had us in mind when He went to the cross that He would pay for our sins in such a way that everything would be done so that this truth would be revealed to us, so that we would believe, so that we would be accepted by God, reconciled to Him. He went to secure our salvation. And it causes us to sit in awe and wonder and realize that that is what Jesus was called to do and did. He prays for Himself. But then He turns and He prays for us. He, he prays as we read through this prayer. We realize that He's praying for those immediately around Him, His disciples. But even more than just for them, because you'll notice He says in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, but, but for those who believe, who will believe in Me through their word. That's us. That's all believers throughout all of history. Because we, as other believers, come to faith through the very word of the apostles. We hear it from the Scripture. Whether we read it with our own eyes or whether we hear it spoken from another, this is the very revelation of God. This contains the, the, the truth of the gospel and thus, and thus we all come to faith through their testimony of Jesus ultimately. And so Jesus is praying for all believers, both then and there, and us as well. And so he comes and, and he says again amazingly that for those the Father had given him, those he would give eternal life, he comes to manifest his name. 
to reveal himself. Jesus is the very revealer of God. There is no knowing God apart from Jesus. He's come to reveal him. Uh, John speaks to us that he's the word made flesh. He's the very one who's come to make the Father known. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus himself has said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why he's come, that we can see God and to know him. And so he manifests his name in a special way, in a saving way, if you will, to those the Father had given him. And they receive that word. They keep it. Those very ones. You and me. And they believe that the Father has sent him, which is, which is really what it's all about. Who is this Jesus? Where is he from? He's from heaven. He's not from Bethlehem, per se. He's not from Nazareth, per se. He's not from Capernaum, per se. He's from glory. He had glory before the foundations of the earth, and he's going to return to that. And this is this Jesus who's come in the very authority of God because he's God in the flesh. And to believe that means that I believe everything about him, that he's reliable, that he's truth, and to trust in him, and thus to be one who receives eternal life. So that's what Jesus does. He prays for his work, and now he prays, he prays for us. What I want to do this morning, if God will help me, is to sort of outline what is to come, what we're going to take up. We've taken up a little bit in this section, but, but, but to ask the question really is, what does Jesus pray for us? And to take a look at that in a broad kind of way. We'll unpack this in probably the next two months. But, but what is it that Jesus really prays for us with an eye of, of, of seeing the significance of that and, and really seeing then what's important for us, even how we ought to be praying for ourselves, and even as we come to the table. But the very obvious thing before I get into that is that Jesus prays. We've talked some about that as we, as we entered this prayer. We talked about the fact that Jesus does indeed pray for himself. But, but it's, it's amazing to us that Jesus prays. What we have here is kind of an intra-Trinitarian council, if you will, the, the Son talking to the Father. So we get uh, his perspective, their perspective, in such an intimate way on themselves and upon us and our salvation. But it's amazing that Jesus himself prays. Now, prayer for us is quite mysterious, isn't it? Often we ask the question, why should we pray if God is omniscient? That is, why should we pray if God knows everything? And in fact, Jesus himself told his disciples and all those listening that uh, uh, it isn't as if when we pray that we're telling God something that he doesn't know. He knows even what we're going to ask before we ask it. And we don't need to describe the situation and the circumstance to God because he doesn't know the situation and circumstance. God knows everything that is. In fact, God knows everything that is but isn't. <laughs> he knows everything that could be but, but isn't happening at the moment. He knows all those alternatives. And so it isn't when we're praying that we're informing him of stuff that he doesn't know. And so the question is, why even pray at all? Why say anything if God knows what we're going to ask before we ask it? Why shouldn't we just... Be silent in his presence. And not only that, why should we pray if God is sovereign? That is, if he's the king over all things, that if he has a plan and it's going to come to fruition and nothing can thwart it. Why is it that we should pray if, in fact, God is sovereign? These things can impede our own praying. I mean, what good does it do to pray if God knows what I'm going to ask? What good does it do? For me to, to tell God about situations that he already knows about, what good does it do for me to, to share with God things about which he, he's smarter than I am 
Wouldn't it be scary for you, for you to say something to God and he's, wow, I never thought of that. Good idea. Let's change history. Um, That would be a little scary. But but we, we wonder about that. And if God is sovereign, if nothing can thwart his will, and if indeed he has a will, and if indeed he's ordained all things that will come to pass, then why is it that we should pray? Now, of course, those two questions could take up volumes. Uh, You go down to Signs of Life, there's probably a whole shelf that deal with those two questions. And they've probably only ordered the tip of the iceberg, the best of the tip of the iceberg, but only the tip of the iceberg, uh, of all the books that could be possibly uh, about that. My only point is this. None of that impeded Jesus from praying. He knew that. He knew that his father knew everything. In fact, he knew quite a bit himself being God in the flesh. And yet he still prayed. He knew that God was sovereign. He knew his father had a will. He knew that his father had a purpose. But none of that kept Jesus from praying for us even. So why did he pray? Well, on the one hand, he prayed because he knew our need. And on the one hand, he knew what we were up against. He knew our calling. He knew that we were going to be sent, as he put it here, even as he had been sent. He knew that. He knew the danger in which we would go. He knew that we were in the world. He knew that Satan was in the world. He knew that better than most. He knew that better than all of us. Because he encountered him very personally and was about to encounter him even more personally, if you will. So he knew the environment in which we were sent. He knew our frailty and our weakness. Indeed, Jesus is our high priest. And thus, he lives, the scripture says, to intercede for us. He, he knows our humanity uh, perfectly. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews in chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here is Jesus, this high priest. The priest in the Old Testament context was the one who perfectly identified with the people because he came from the people. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in in Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said, You're my son today, I've begotten you. And as he says also in another place, You're a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek's. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so we see that Jesus is this high priest, the high priest. And like the, high, like the priests in the Old Testament representing people before God, Jesus represents us before God. Like the high priests of the Old Testament, he, they knew the frailty, the weakness of people because they were human. Jesus knows that as well because though he 
emptied himself, the scripture says in Philippians chapter 2, or made himself nothing. That was our call to worship this morning. He didn't empty himself of his deity. But he emptied himself of the glory that was associated with that deity. He took the very form of a servant and humbled himself to obedience, even to death on a cross. And so you see this very Jesus took on humanity. He didn't give up deity, but he took on humanity so that he would know us and know our frailties and know precisely what we would need. Indeed, he did all of that even without sin. So Jesus prays because he knows our need. He knows what we're up against. He knows who we are and, and he knows, therefore, uh, who we need and what we need. Therefore, uh, he prays. But not only that, Jesus prays in such a way that, that he knows that he's not telling God stuff that God doesn't know. Because, you see, prayer is more than a list of, of giving to God things that we need or things that are going on. Prayer is a deep part of our relationship with the Father, as it was with Jesus. It would be unthinkable for Jesus not to speak to his Father. It would be unthinkable for him not to pray. He prayed all the time, the Scripture tells us. He did because it was a, a sense of his, of his relationship uh, with the Father. Um, I trust that husbands, when they tell their wives, I love you, aren't telling their wives something new. I hope that your, our wives don't look at us after we say, I love you, and say, what a surprise, <laughs> I didn't know that. Or vice versa. Now, there may be times when you tell your wife you love her and she looks at you a bit surprised given what you've just done or said before that. But... But it shouldn't be new information. But you still say it. Why? Because it's, it's relational. It's part of the relationship. It's part of the expression of that relationship that, that must be said. It can't go without saying. I hope you tell your spouse, I hope you tell your children that you love them. That you delight in them. That's part of that relationship. But I also hope it's nothing new. I hope they're not surprised by it. But it's part of that relationship. And in the same way, when we come to God, it isn't simply about lists of things that we want or things that we need. It's part of that relationship. In fact, it, it, it's, it's the assurance of this relationship that is manifested by our continual communication, our continual talking. If you're like me, you have people throughout the country, maybe even throughout the world, that you refer to as your friends. But then you think, I haven't really talked to that person in... 20 years. And so then you have to question, is that person really a friend? Am I certain that person's a friend? Now maybe you think, well, if I bumped into that person or if they called or if I called them, we'd talk as if we were friends, but there's this uncertainty there. Why? Because you don't really know what's transpired in their lives in the last 20 years. Are they still your friend? Do you really still know them? Do they know about you? Do you know about them? Do they know your kids' names? Do you know their kids' names? Is there a relationship here? You see, part of what this is in Jesus' life and indeed in our lives with God it is, is the assurance of this relationship. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of some notes of a previous generation, put it like this. He says, I suggest that we must inevitably come to the conclusion that prayer to the Christian is something natural and almost instinctive. Prayer is something which is expressive of the relationship between the child and the father. So then I think the saints and supremely our Lord Jesus himself prayed to God primarily not to ask for things, but to assure their own hearts 
and to maintain their contact with God and to make certain that their contact and communion with Him was sure. See, we don't pray just to give God information. And we don't pray to get God to give us things. Simply that. Nor pray that God give us things that He wouldn't otherwise want to give us. I have a booklet in my library that I keep because I keep a whole group of what I call heretical books. But I like this book only because, I, because the title is so bad. It's written by a pastor who's now deceased. So I won't give you his name. It's not important anymore. But it's from Tulsa. But the... Um, doesn't, uh, doesn't have a university, a Bible college. But anyway... Uh, The title of the booklet is Praying to Get Results. Now, I, 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 the intent might even be good, but, 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 but that title is just the wrong thing to pick up. Clay doesn't sell that book, by the way. It's the wrong, wrong attitude to go into prayer. It isn't praying simply to get results. It's praying to know the Father. It's praying to share life with Him. It's praying to be in relationship with Him and have that relationship assured with Him. How can we not think of God without speaking and responding? How can we not read without, without saying thank you? How can we not read even and, and, and feeling the longing of our heart pricked by the Scripture when we read about the very will of God for us? You see, that's the perfect life, that which is the will of God for us. And when we read through the Scripture, and as we hear and read the will of God for our lives, what He has for us, that generates within the believer a longing. A longing that can't help but say, Oh God, please make that real in my own life. When we read, for instance, about the forgiveness of sins, what do we do? How do we, what do we just simply go, ho-hum, God knows my sins, He's forgiven me. No, it, it, it moves in us a longing to have sins forgiven. And thus confession happens. We begin to speak to Him and we confess our sins to Him that those sins might be acknowledged and we might receive consciously His forgiveness. And when we do, we say thank you. When He says, I want you to walk in purity, there's a reson- uh, that res- resonates with us in our, in our deep in our own hearts. And we say, yes, I want that. God, please forgive my impurity and enable me, cause me to walk in purity. When we hear that we're to be His witnesses, we say, yes, that's true. The world needs to know. God, please work in me that, that I might be your witness in this place. You see how that happens. It, it, it can't not happen. And so Jesus prays, he sees the situation. He knows that he's sending us, he's sending his people into the world. He knows the dangers thereof. He knows the blessings thereof. He he knows the very longing that he has for them, that they would be with him and see his glory. We read that and say, yes, that's true. We desire that. And thus he prays that all that would take place and all that would happen. Now notice what he prays. As Jesus uh, comes to pray, he prays, notice in verse 11, he says, And I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The first thing he prays is that the Father would keep them in his name. He's given them his name, uh, meaning this, 
that we have the very name of God upon us, which means we're named by His name, which means we belong to Him. Those things which are named by another's name, uh, says that belongs to the one whose name is on it. And so Jesus is saying, keep them, hold them fast, preserve them in your name. Don't let them go. Because you see, if the blessing that Jesus has come to give us, that is eternal life, if that blessing is to be ours, then we must maintain, we must persevere, we must keep on. And so Jesus, knowing our frailty, knowing our weakness, he prays, God, keep them in your name. Now, it's the will of God that we be kept in his name. Notice how Jesus has put it previously in John in chapter 10, in verse 27. Uh, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. It's, it's a done deal in that sense. We're in the very hand of God. But yet Jesus prays that we be kept in the father, in the father's name, that we not be allowed to stray and to wander. Why does he pray that when it's a done deal? Because it's his heart's desire. And it's his father's will. And thus he speaks it to his father and says, Oh God, keep them. Keep them. I know the danger they're in. Keep them in your hand. He goes on and says even this uh, in verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus says that they're going to stay here in this world. Uh, we're not to be separated from the world in the sense that uh, we have no dealings with it. We do. We're here. We live amongst unbelievers. And Jesus had already told his disciples that just as he was hated, they would be hated in the context of the world. And we're not to be taken out of it until our very death. So Jesus says, I know where they're going to be, so keep them in the midst of that and, and keep them from the evil one because he's here. This is a real evil one, Satan. Jesus knew that very well. He had met this Satan in the garden. He would meet him, uh, uh, I'm sorry, met him in the wilderness when he was tempted. He would now meet him again. He'd been lurking all around. Even the Apostle Peter speaks to us of this one, Satan. He puts it like this. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's this very one. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in a very familiar passage in Ephesians in chapter 6. He says, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus says, I know what the world is. I know what's going on here. I know that th there's temptations and I know that there's persecution and I know that there's sufferings and all of these things can pull them away. So, Father, keep them. Keep them from the evil one. Because, he says, I'm going to send them into the world as you have sent me. Do you know how Jesus put that in his own life? He said, I'm sending you as lambs among the wolves. 
That was his understanding of what was taking place. And so we must go there. And so Jesus said, keep them in the midst of that. The third thing that Jesus prays is that in all of this, we would have his joy. Notice verse 13. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's an amazing thing. He says, in the midst of this world that is going to hate them, in the midst of this calling where I'm sending them among the wolves, in the midst of, 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 of the very presence of Satan, uh, I want them to have joy. This very deep sense, this abiding sense that God is with us. This very deep and abiding sense that we have something that can't be taken. And the something that we can't be taken is more important than anything else. Not only that, but we realize this very something that we have that's more important than everything else that can't be taken from us is precisely what everyone else needs. So it's of great value. And so even as we go into the world with this testimony of Jesus, we know that we're taking it in such a way that we're taking this message that's of such great value that regardless of the suffering that, that comes, it still brings joy to be a testimony of it. Remember what the Scripture says of Jesus Himself in Hebrews in chapter 12. He said, looking to Jesus, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who through the joy that was set before him enjoyed the, in, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He said he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What an amazing expression. All that Jesus experienced in the cross he did by way of joy. Where was the joy? It wasn't, frankly, in the feeling of pain. It wasn't a masochist in that sense. But it was in the knowledge that what he was doing was of greater value and of great, such great worth that the suffering was more than worth it. He was glorifying his father. He was bringing salvation to those he loved. And, and thus, that is what brought him joy. And he says that we're to experience that very same joy as well, even in the midst of, even in the midst of suffering. And then notice what else he prays in verse 14. Laundry list day. I'm just giving you lists. Verse 14, he writes, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you send me into the world so that I have sent them in the world. And for their sake, I consecrate or sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Fourth thing that Jesus prays is that we be made holy, sanctified, set apart. That we live in such a way that we live holy lives. The scripture says that without holiness, it's impossible to see God. So Jesus says, I've come that they would be sanctified. And we're sanctified by the truth. It's the very truth of God that, that changes us, that transforms us, that, that makes us holy. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts, fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Because the truth, the word of God, does indeed make us holy. It keeps us as we meditate upon it, as we believe it, as we trust it, as we walk in it. It keeps us from sin. So Jesus is in the midst of this whole environment into which I've sent them into this world. Keep them, preserve them. Keep them in your name. Don't let them stray. Keep them safe from the evil one. Don't let him pick them apart. Don't let them have at them in such a way that they fall away. Give them joy in the midst of all of this. Make them holy in the midst of all this. We, we have an expression that we use from time to time where we say God is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. That's almost right. He is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. But what he ultimately desires is that we're happy in holiness. See, that's where he wants to move us. It isn't that, that he's so concerned about holiness that, that he cares little about our happiness and joy. No, 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 that's not it at all. He comes to give us eternal life. What is that? Eternal life is living in harmony with God. Eternal life is living at peace with Him. Eternal life is living in the very joy of God. That's what He desires. Eternal life is walking with Him. Ultimately, eternal life future to come is living in perfect holiness in the very presence of God, in perfect harmony with each other, in perfect harmony with all of creation, where the lamb can really lay down with the, with, with, with the lion. Whereas the prophet Isaiah said, the, the child can stick his hand in the adder's den, meaning you can find a hole where a snake is and stick his hand down there and mom won't say, get out of there! Because he'll just be shaking hands, tails, heads, whatever you shake with a snake, uh, with a friend. Uh, because there'll be perfect peace. You see. God desires holiness because through holiness comes great joy. If it doesn't, if it brings drudgery, it's not real holiness. So God is more concerned about our holiness than happiness, but what He really desires is that we live happy in holiness. That's really what fuels us, you see. And then finally notice what Jesus prays this in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus said, I know why I've been sent. As he put it in John chapter 6, he's been sent so that he can raise up all the Father has given him on that day. And so he says, I desire that they be with me, that they see my glory. Why? Because Jesus knows when we see his glory, we'll be made like him. And his glory will spread, and the glory of God will spread over the whole new earth as the waters cover the sea. And that will be perfection. That will be eternal life. That will be everything. He said, that's my desire for them. I desire that they know eternal life. They know perfect joy in the very presence of God. So keep them 
in your name. Because in order to have this ultimate eternal life, they must belong to you. So keep them, Father. I know the weakness of their heart. I know the weakness of their soul. I know the weakness of their flesh. So keep them. And keep them from the evil one because I know they're in the world and I know he's all around and I know him and I know the evil that he brings. So keep them, protect them there. And in the midst of that, bring them joy because that very joy will be their strength. If they become too discouraged, then they may turn away. So, so give them your joy so that they would know, Father, that what they have can't be taken. What they have is worth everything. And Father... Cause them to walk in holiness because then they'll see it. They'll get it. They'll know its value. And then bring them to be with me where I am and give them that vision that that's their ultimate destiny because then they can say that the present suffering is not worth the eternal weight of glory that is to come, you see. That is not to be even compared to that. It's just a momentary hardship. Now, even as we say those words, we know the hardships that we face are real. We know that the trouble that we experience is real and it's painful. And if that's all we saw, it would be debilitating. So he says, I want them to realize, I want them to know that they're going to be with me and see my glory. Because that will then, in comparison to what they're experiencing, will be their very joy. That's what will enable them to continue to persevere and to continue to come. Now what's significant, I think, about this, at least for this day, and we'll delve into each one of those points, and it'll take us forever, but then delve in each one of those points in the future. But but what's significant for us here to realize is this is what Jesus is now praying for us, even still, as he lives to intercede for us. This is what's important for us. You know, when we gather for prayer meetings, one of the first things we often say is, what are the prayer requests? You notice Jesus didn't turn to his disciples and say, what are your requests here? He doesn't need to do that. Because he knows exactly what they need. Now, in these particular categories, there are all kinds of things, obviously. And we know that we're to pray without ceasing. We know that we're to, to let every request known, made known to God. And all of that, we're to pour our hearts to him uh, uh, as a child to a father. But, but, but these things mustn't be neglected in our own lives. That we pray that God would keep us. That he would keep us in his name. That he would keep us, protect us from the evil one. That we shouldn't be smug about the evil in the world. And about this one in particular, Satan and all of his plans. And we need to pray for our own joy. How easy it is to be discouraged. And we're to pray, of course, for holiness. And we're to pray that we would be with him. And finally this, that we would pray that we would be one as He and the Father are one. That we would pray that there would be unity among us. Not just here, but generationally. Unity with these apostles. That we would believe what they believed. That we would follow what they taught. That there would be a consistency between us and them and and throughout all of the faith, if you will, from beginning to end, that Christians are Christians. And though generations change and cultures change and all of that kind of thing, that still we believe the same from generation to generation to generation of that which is true about Jesus, that we're one with them and that we're unified with each other. Because you see, the very 
fact of being created in the image of God means that we're to be like Him. And there is perfect harmony and perfect unity within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. The the Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son, and so forth. There's perfect harmony and perfect love there. And we're to reflect that. There's so much that can come in and cause us to be at odds with each other. But you see, we're to be a one community. We're to be a unified community. Why? Because that's the very essence of the gospel. We're to be people of peace. Peace with God, peace with each other. That's what he's come to make. If we're not people of peace with each other, how can we be peace with the world? How can we be at peace with anyone else? We need to be at peace with each other. We need to be forgiving people. We've been forgiven. We're a forgiving community. How can we not forgive? How can we hold grudges against each other? How can we have bitterness one to another when we're to be a forgiving community because we've been forgiven, you see? And so he prays that all of that would be true, that we indeed would be one. Those are the important things. Those are prayer requests of Jesus concerning us. You want to know how to pray Pray these things. And the great news is those are the very things that are the will of God for us. These are the very things that should strike and pull from us the very longings of our hearts. These should be the important things for us. That no matter what else is going on, no matter what we may be suffering, no matter what we may be experiencing, no matter what difficulties may be coming into us, either because of what's going on in our own bodies or coming from the outside or political or whatever that may be, Whatever else, God, keep me in your name. Whatever else, God, keep me from the evil one. Whatever else, God, fill me with your joy. Whatever else, God, make me holy. Whatever else, God, cast my eyes upon you, Jesus, in such a way that I desire to be with you and to see your glory. No matter what else, keep me connected with Christians, with believers from beginning to end, most especially, most immediate to me. And then Jesus, in that moment in history, at the end of that prayer, will turn and fulfill it. He prayed it, and now, after having prayed it, he will say, okay, I will go and I will do it. I will, I will bring peace. I will give eternal life to those the Father has given me. And I will put the Father's name upon them in such a way that it cannot be taken. And I will, by my very blood, protect them, save them from the evil. And as they know that, that will be their joy. And I will send the Spirit who will make them holy. And I will preserve them in such a way that they will come and be with you. And I will give them peace with each other. Foreshadowed all of that moments before this prayer, as he was with his disciples and took bread gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. On that night, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, as he did with the bread, he gave this cup to them. And he said, this cup is my new covenant. In my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. This too, he said, in remembrance of me. It's only because of what Jesus has done that we can even think 
being people of your name. It's only because of what Jesus has done that we could have any hope at all that we could be protected from the world, protected from evil, protected from the evil one. It's only because of what Jesus has done that we could have any anticipation of joy, of knowing that, that we have that which cannot be taken, which is of utmost value eternal life. It's only because of what Jesus has done, Father, that we need to think about being holy because He is the one who has broken the power of sin over us. He is the one who sends His Spirit to us that we might be transformed and that His very image would be made in us. We conform to His image, holy. It's only because of what Jesus has done that we can have any hope at all of seeing the very glory of God and being with you throughout eternity. It's only because of what Jesus has done that we can have a hope to be at peace with you, peace with each other. So we give you thanks. The Father, that also gives us great confidence to pray that you would keep us, that you would give us joy, that you would make us hope. That you would preserve us in such a way that we would come today to see your glory, that you would make us one. Because we know that's the very will of the Father. Give us those longings that we may desire those things, that we may speak to about them, that we may pray for them, that we may know that Jesus intercedes for us about them. May we walk in all of that. Father, set apart this bread, I pray, this Jesus that you are able enable us to see that, to remind us of Jesus, and, and even, Father, as he's present with us around this table, as we come this morning to it, that we would fellowship with him. May we be grateful to receive all that you have for us. In him, this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, this table... It's not the table of grace that is on the Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and He invites to it all those who understand that will be sinners in His sight without hope except in His sovereign mercy. All that believe upon Jesus and receive Him as He's offered to us in the gospel of the Savior of sinners, and all that is to desire to live in such a way that is consistent with being a follower of Christ. That's true for the Lord, right? come. These two sections can come down this road, this aisle to my left. These two sections down the aisle, the row to my right. Please take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, realize that Jesus has prayed for you that you be kept, that you be filled with joy, that you would be made holy, that you would see His glory, and that you would be one. All of this.